Oh, that's right, folks. You have the power. So we talked about in the last segment. You just have to make sure you use it before it's gone. Because once it's gone, it's much, much harder to get than it is to lose. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm just reminding you. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. I was thinking about Shakespeare's Henry V today. I know, my mind works weird, I know. If you ever get a chance to uh, see the play, you should. Two of my favorite, I, there's several, I love Shakespeare plays. I would say, and I want them to be in the original vernacular. I don't want, I, when I lived in Boulder, we had the, the Shakespeare Festival, which was great in the summer. It was outside, it was in this little stone courtyard, with all these stone benches surrounding the stage, and you know, kind of in a half circle. It felt very like you were in it, like you were in a Greek play uh, area, you know, like a uh, small sort of theater, as it were, outside theater. But then they would always put something on with modern uniforms and uh, using uh, today's language, and it just lost so much. What happens is that people have produced things like this. I mean, Shakespearean plays have been around since, you know, 1640s. Oh, my, I can't remember exactly now. I said that, and then it popped out of my head. But where people have gotten, where if they're in the theater, sometimes they get tired of doing it the same way. So they want to start doing different staging and this and that. And you can do that and, and make it more interesting or different enough if someone sees these often because there's something you can see more than once. But then they get start getting crazy. And then, of course, what happens is they have to creep the political viewpoints into it. I saw, I think I saw Julius Caesar, which one of my very favorite plays as well. Um, no, it was, it was Hamlet. And they, they had instituted people in there that were wearing like green beret uniforms. Not really. They were wearing green berets and like military uniforms. And it was all made out to be bad military. It was just strange, you know. But if you get the chance to see a play put on as the bard wrote it, I would recommend that you, and you can probably get this online someplace, maybe even out there without paying for it, maybe on, on one of these, uh, uh, channels that doesn't have a pay wall, but even if it does, you should, it's the uh, Henry V that's done by Kenneth Branagh. And Kenneth Branagh's made a bunch of other stuff. He's done some Shakespeare stuff, and I find a lot of his other stuff to be kind of mediocre. He just did something, Murder on the Orient Express, which was like, you know, he murdered Agatha Christie on the Orient Express. Uh, he was a produced it, was in it, but his Shakespearean stuff is all quite good. And he plays Henry V. I think this probably came out in like 89 or something. And I, I saw it a few years after it came out, and it's just well worth seeing. And, of course, there's several. When you see one of these plays and you hear all these phrases thrown around, you realize, geez, my gosh, there's probably no more common source of idioms and phrases in the English language than Shakespeare. They are all over the place. All's well that ends well, right? <laughs> Things like that. It's everywhere. And some of the plays, of course, Hamlet is is full of them, Othello, um, you know, and, of course, C Julius Caesar and Henry V. Henry V has a, a lot of these in it. And it, of course, has the famous scene of the Band of Brothers where they took that term for the book about uh, Easy Company in World War II. And uh, it's so inspiring because you know, what they're discussing is that they don't think they have enough people to defeat the French. The French at Agincourt, and we're never quite sure because, you know, historians at the time tended to 
bend things to the side they were riding from. But they probably did outnumber the the British forces probably right around three or four to one. And the British had been there meandering around, fighting battles, half fluor, all these kinds of things. Because you may know this, but a lot of what we now think of as France used to belong to the King of England. Had, he had Normandy and Anjou and, uh, uh, you know, all of this stuff, right, uh, in there. And so they were still fighting over that, trying to hold on to that. Henry V was a great warrior king who had a very tumultuous upbringing as a child. And as an adolescent, he was wild and people didn't think he'd make a great king. He became king and he became a great king and a great warrior, a great warrior king. I know we still talk about that in America, I guess. And so they, they had this uh, speech about St. Crispin's Day, which was the, the feast day when they fought this battle at Agincourt in France. And, you know, he talks about uh, we few, because they were so outnumbered, everyone was worried. And he gives a speech that we few, we happy few, uh, we band of brothers, and that uh, anybody that wants to leave can, because he would not perish in the company of someone who did not wish to perish in his. And that everyone, no matter who they were, that fought with him that day would be his brother. And it was just a great, great scene. And it motivates you to realize that it's the heart that makes people great warriors. It's not the numbers. And it's a great thing to think about. So I was thinking about that a little bit today. That uh, in our hearts and in our spirit is what makes a great citizen. Because if you're not a great citizen, it's hard to be a great warrior, not for your country. And it's just something to think about. Uh, my mind drifts these ways periodically. Now, I want to read something to you that uh, I thought we should cover today, uh, not a particularly in, in line with any theme, but because I think it outlines where we're headed or the kinds of things that will break things down even further if we don't seize the moment and exercise that warrior spirit of uh, getting on the uh, barricades of voting, finding candidates, supporting them, uh, getting out to vote, making sure everybody votes, making sure all of these things that we're holding on to right now, somewhat tenuously, I might add, do not perish from the face of the earth, as Lincoln said. So, here, here's the thing that I, this is from the Daily Mail. I'm not making this up. I posted this on our webpage where you can see a lot of the stories and things and stuff I think are interesting as well as tons of news feeds that pour into it at politicalviking.com or therickwagnershow.com. Both of those will get you to it. This is a story that was in the Daily Mail. University of California at Berkeley. Hey, you remember Berkeley, right? Uh, they have a, a house for students that's, that got started called the Person of Color Theme House. Okay, fine. However, here's kind of interesting. It bans white guests from common areas. Here, read you a little bit about it. This is from the, from the story of the Daily Mail. The accommodation houses University of California Berkeley students and has rules that specifically ban, quote, white people, end quote, from common spaces in the house. The Person of Color Theme House says many of its members moved to the house to avoid, quote, white violence, close quote. It also calls for members to avoid bringing parents, family members that express bigotry. Fine. Whatever that's supposed to mean. 
And uh, the accommodation, it's by uh, Berkeley. It's a five-story place. It's got 30 rooms. has 56 students that can house, right? Now, there's all sorts of rules that are posted up there. And apparently some people went in and photographed some of these rules and put them out on, like, Reddit and some other social media areas. And people went, what? <laughs> I mean, are you making this up? It weren't so mean-spirited you would think it was something from, like, the Babylon Bee or something, you know, like, like a satire. But it's so mean-spirited, it's not funny at all. And... Um, Here's one of the rules to sort of reiterate something we just talked about, um, that one of the rules posted, it says that the people had moved into this house uh, to be able to avoid white violence and presence. So respect their decision of avoidance if you bring white guests. The rules specifically state white guests are not allowed in common spaces. There's a list of that, apparently, as we said. But the rules, this is the quote around the rules, were leaked on social media. People are upset, but... They said, uh, this is the one I think is kind of funny, many people were slamming the restrictions as racist. Really? Isn't this exactly the definition of racism? Excluding people because of their race? Uh, banning them from areas? Not wanting them to be able to get into the house? Um, another rule states that guests must be announced if they are going to be in common spaces if they are white. <laughs> and... Uh, that because queer, black, and indigenous members should not have to avoid common spaces because of homophobic or racist parents or family members. There you go. Someone is paying a lot of money to have their child attend that university, where apparently, and it's a little hard to, from the story of how sanctioned this is by the University of California, Berkeley, but probably uh, it isn't hard to imagine that they at at best, are just turning a blind eye to it. But the reason I put that out there, especially when I, I caution us to not get too negative, because it makes you feel pretty negative, is that this is the kind of nonsensical, destructive, undermining process that's going on. This kind of thing goes nowhere. Now, some of you are saying, well, of course it does. It goes, it's destroying the culture, it destroys, destroys the unity, it creates divisiveness, uh, it pits groups against each other. Sure, yes, obviously that's the Democrat platform, but at least the modern Democrat platform. But that's what, what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is, think about the arc of this. Where does it end up? I mean, it'll, it has an end point, obviously, but what... What sort of progress does it make? It doesn't. It's nihilism. It goes nowhere. It's the, it is an elimination of things. It's the elimination of tolerance. It's the elimination of comradeship through things other than race. It is the elimination of people's shared beliefs, shared concerns, all the things that tie us together and destroys all of those on the basis of one immutable characteristic that none of us choose to have or share. How can that progress towards anywhere? It doesn't. It just moves into empty space. It's almost, it's a purely destructive philosophy. It's a reductionist one. It reduces everybody to the lowest common denominator of characteristics over which they have no control and has no impact on anything. 
It doesn't impact who kind of person you are. It doesn't impact your intelligence, how grateful you are for things, uh, how much you respect freedom, how how much you want to give to your fellow man, how what kind of benevolence you may have. It does none of that. There's none of that that's shared by this. It has nothing at its core. It has nothing to do with any of that. It is an attempt to bind people by one thing that does not move anyone forward. No society has moved forward simply on the basis of their race. It doesn't have anything to do with it. And here, obviously, they're not trying to move anybody forward. They're just trying to attack others. This is something that's based on some sort of revenge characteristic or something. Remember that one of the truly insidious things that can happen to a society is when you insist on giving a large portion, a significant minority in some cases, of individuals that are struggling to succeed, a reason that they're not succeeding that has nothing to do with their ability or work ethic or anything like that. When you allow people to say, the reason you're not succeeding is just because of X. And that thing is some characteristic that they carry around over which they cannot work out of. In other words, you can't work harder and change your race uh, or succeed in changing it through some sort of, you know, well, I'll just, I'll just work nights. And I, and of course not. These are characteristics that they, they want to say, gee, you're struggling. Here's a way that you can blame something else and quit struggling. And when people ask you why you're not succeeding, you can say it's because of this. And that is a prescription for a society that just drifts downward like a feather falling from a building. It just goes down and down and down, slowly swaying back and forth till it hits the ground. Because then, anytime somebody runs up against something difficult, they're able to say, well, I can't do that. And, and of course, if you're going to put that kind of philosophy out there, you have to convince people that it's true. You can't just say it. You have to convince them of it. And if the reason you're putting that out there is some sort of very devious reason, which is to say, if I tell people that they cannot succeed because of their race, their ethnicity, how they spell their name, you know, which finger is longer on their hand, whatever I choose, then I can say, but wait, all of these people that are, you know, long second finger bigoted people out there, if they see your hand and the one fi- this, the uh, third finger is longer than the second finger, they're not going to give you a job. Then I, this special person, this great leader for you will make them not treat you that way because of that. So it's it's really a way to seize power by disempowering people and convincing them that the only way they get that power back is through you. And that's what's happening. That's what happened in all of this divisive stuff. 
It's the idea that if we break you down and convince you that everyone is against you and the only person that's on your side that's going to help you triumph is this political party, this person, this group, this, uh, you know, not-for-profit organization that's funded by, uh, you know, Zuckerberg or whatever the case may be. That's the purpose of that. It is, in essence, a stealing of power. They take the power of these individuals by welding them together by a grievance, and many times an imagined grievance. Most of the time it's an imagined grievance, or a grievance that's been solved a long time ago or is well in the way of being fixed. And then you get to say, oh, by the way, I am your king. Because only I and my group of like-minded individuals will lead you to the promised land where people will not be biased against you because of the length of your third finger. Right? I'm using that example because it's so ridiculous. Unfortunately, it's not as ridiculous as it seems based the way things are going. That's it. You know, there's, there's some popular music every so often, even for people I'm not particularly crazy about, that say things that stick in my head for a long time. And I can't remember the song, but it's the Bruce Springsteen song. And he said, all men want to be rich. Rich men want to be kings. Isn't that true? Don't we see that? No, it's not true of all of them, no. But isn't it true a pretty good percentage of the time? I mean, what does Bill Gates care about some of this stuff? Now, apparently Bill Gates was uh, instrumental in convincing Manchin to betray everything he said in the past, and all of us, and do this Inflation Reduction Act bill that is, you know, right there. A bolt of lightning should strike everybody that says that's what it is, but it's not going to. Um, partly because we live in a land of free will. And if God were to intervene every time and stop people from lying and cheating and doing things, then there would be no free will. So we have to let people do this kind of stuff, and it's up to us to notice the difference. The Lord helps those that help themselves. So he was instrumental in that, apparently, of convincing poor, you know, little Joe Manchin to uh, cross over to the other side. And why does Bill Gates care? There's nothing in this world that Bill Gates can't buy. Maybe a country. Yeah, he could probably buy a country, buy a small one. But, I mean, really, Bill Gates can live in such a way that nothing that affects the rest of us will affect him. Same way with Zuckerberg and several of these other tech titans, some of the characters at Google whose name I can't pronounce, so I don't try. Uh, they, they live in a world, we talk about, where they're not subjected to the consequences of their actions. True. But beyond that, why do they care? I mean, a lot of it is... Sure, a lot of it's because they feel bad about where they got. Some of them had one idea, and it took off, and in a tech culture, made them an enormous amount of money. We have a governor here in Colorado like that, who, you know, you in normal conversation, you wouldn't think that he would be able to get a job mowing lawns, and he's a uh, hundred millionaire, but it happens. So you think, what, what is it to some of these guys? Why, why do they care? Outside of some people really do that have a lot of money, want to give back. You know, there's plenty of charities out there that really need help. They're starving people places. 
There are individuals that need microloans to help with their businesses. There's animals out there. You know, that's one of my favorite charities is, is you know, cats and dogs. I mean, I, I love pets. Sorry. You know, but there's all these things you could do. Why choose to change the culture? Why try and do all of these things that are, are divisive and try and overwhelm some other part of the country? Why choose that? That's not charitable. That's not anything to do with giving or what most not-for-profits used to be started for. Why choose that? It's because they wish to be kings. They are sit on top of the mountain where they're at, but it's a mountain of money. And they want power. And they want things to change based on their whim. And with that, we understand many of why their things are the way they are. Right? Let me read you something from Tacitus, our favorite historian. Lust of absolute power is more burning than all the passions. Yes, it is. And it burns in the hearts of the Bezos, although he's a little little confused now about space, which is fine with me and his girlfriend, but nevertheless, it certainly burns in the hearts of the Zuckerbergs and the tech titans and, you know, the people who have made money sometimes in their own way and others found it, you know, they found it in the mattress that their parents had earned or something. But that's what it is. Sorry, we can't have a country that becomes an oligarchy trying to force its way into a kingship. So we got to get out there and make sure that we exercise our vote, find the candidates, and do what needs to be done. Because if we don't, we're, what we're going to see is the rest of this nonsense that I read here from Berkeley is going to continue to crack society apart, and we're not going to recognize it. So find the candidates, support them, send some money, send some time, knock some doors. By golly, don't let anybody you know not vote. Talk to you soon.